I'll be continuing reading on from John 11, verse 38 to 57. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odour, for he has been there for four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have always heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you to let one man die for the people than let the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation and not only for the nation, but for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from this day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for the ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, What do you think? Is he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. Good evening, and allow me to add my own welcome to our final youth service for our 2022. Okay, I was expecting like any type of response there, guys. <laughs> Last youth service of 2022. <laughs> Yeah, great. Um, if this is your first time at 6pm Church in a while, then you have landed smack bang in the middle of a series on the Gospel of John. Now, the Gospel of John was written by, surprise, surprise, John, who was one of Jesus' best friends. And so, writing this Gospel gives us great insight into the actions and teachings of Jesus in his life. Now, tonight we've had read for us the entire story of the raising of Lazarus. And that is quite an impressive feat. However, I want to suggest that what we have read tonight is not just the tale of one resurrection, but a tale of three resurrections. And so that is my title for tonight, A Tale of Three Resurrections. Now, when I first came up with this title, I was uh, quite proud of myself, not going to lie, because I thought to myself, this title is 100% true, but like a little bit confusing, a little bit intriguing, everyone's going to have to pay so pay super close attention to me to fully figure out who these three resurrections are. And so I went to my wife all really excited and was like, I've got my sermon title, it's a tale of three resurrections. And she responded to me, oh, the resurrection of Lazarus, Jesus and us? And she was 100% right. <laughs> so my title is not as 
intriguing or confusing as I thought it was going to be. So instead of trying to keep you in suspense, let me just put all the facts in front of you from the very get-go. Here are the three resurrections that we're going to be looking at tonight. The first is the resurrection of Lazarus. And his resurrection proves that Jesus is the Messiah. The second resurrection is that of Jesus. Because Jesus' resurrection is both foreshadowed and triggered by this event. And the third resurrection is ours. Because we see in this passage that our resurrection is guaranteed by the one capable of raising the dead. So let's look at these three resurrections tonight, starting with that of Lazarus. So Lazarus' resurrection proved Jesus' identity. Lazarus is a hard word to pronounce. There's a lot of S's going on, so uh, give me a little bit of grace there. The story of the resurrection of Lazarus is in John 11. And like any good story, it has a beginning where we're introduced to the characters and some of the complications. It has a middle where we get a deeper insight into those characters. It has a climax where hopefully the complications are resolved. And then we see some aftermath. We see what happens after this event takes place. So in verse 1, we're introduced to Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha, who lived in a town called Bethany, which was right near Jerusalem. And that is actually quite important. We then encounter two complications. The first, which will drive the story, is that Lazarus is really sick. The second complication is last time Jesus was in Jerusalem, the Jews tried to kill him. Now, in response to that second complication, this is what Jesus has to say. Are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. Right, problem solved, that complication's done and dusted, I get it, do you? No, no, when I first read that little saying by Jesus, I had no idea how that was a response to the idea that the Jews were trying to kill him. That was until I remembered a section of John chapter 9. A few chapters earlier, we heard it preached a few weeks ago by Ange. Here's what Jesus says in John chapter 9. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. You see, Jesus saw his period of ministry as the day and as long as he was here on earth, he would go about doing his ministry without stumbling. And no one else would be able to cause him to stumble either. So Jesus had no fear of those who wanted to kill him because he knew it was still not yet his time to die. There was still daylight left for his ministry. And therefore, it was safe for him to go to Bethany right near Jerusalem. So as Jesus arrives in Bethany, we reach the middle of the story where we gain a deeper insight into some of the characters. Now, if you've read Luke's Gospel, which is just a bit earlier in our Bibles, you'll know that Martha is the active sister, always on the go, while Mary is the contemplative sister who is prepared to sit and wait. And that is exactly what we see in their characters in this chapter. Martha rushes to go meet Jesus, while Mary waits until she is called. Now, both Mary and Martha display a great deal of faith in Jesus. Mary throws herself at Jesus' feet, while Martha declares that, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. 
They both also say that had Jesus been present, he would have been able to stop Lazarus from dying. Now, it's hard to tell from just the text we have in front of us whether that is just a comment of despair or whether that is them trying to put some blame on Jesus. But regardless, we see that they have great faith in Jesus and they wish that he had have been there because they knew that he would have been able to save him from death. Now, seeing their grief really impacted Jesus and we read in the text that he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And then we read that Jesus wept. Now, the death of his friend, the grief of his other friends, caused great sorrow in Jesus. This did not show a lack of faith, because Jesus surely knew what he was about to do in the next few verses. But it does show us that heartfelt mourning and tears in the face of death is something that even our Saviour expressed. If your view of God or of Jesus or of emotions cannot account for the idea of a weeping Jesus, then you have an incorrect view on those things. It's amazing that the shortest verse in our English Bibles, fun fact with Lachlan, it's the third shortest in Greek, but the shortest verse in our English Bibles can give us that type of insight into the character of Jesus. And then we reach the climax of the passage, where Jesus asks them to remove the stone blocking the tomb. Now, despite Martha's great proclamation of faith earlier in the story, it's clear that she didn't expect a resurrection here. And yet, that is exactly what we read. Jesus calls Lazarus to come out of the tomb, and there comes Lazarus shuffling out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Can you imagine how amazed and shocked that crowd would have been? Ancient people were not idiots. They knew that dead people stayed dead. Now, this is normally the moment in the sermon when I would try to give some sort of personal anecdote or a life experience to better illustrate the passage. I have no story, no experience in my life that could come even close to seeing a resurrection. How amazing. What an astounding climax to this story. The aftermath of this type of event was always going to be huge, always going to be very dramatic. And there were two possible responses. The first, as we read in our text, was that many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. That's a really good and natural response. The other response we see was that the religious leaders decided that enough was enough, Jesus had to die. So that's the story of Lazarus' resurrection. But how does that help prove Jesus' identity? The Gospel of John records just a few of Jesus' miracles. And, he, and it records those miracles for a very specific purpose. We read in both 2.11 and 20.31 that these miracles are signs which confirm that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So as we see very clearly in chapter 11, when Jesus first declares that Lazarus has died, he tells his disciples, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you might believe. For the sake of his disciples, Jesus was glad that he was not there to prevent Lazarus' death, because he knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the death, 
from death. And when his disciples saw that happen, it would be a tremendous boost to their faith. Now, we find out early on in this chapter, when Jesus hears the news that Lazarus is sick, that he purposely chooses to delay for two days to go and see him. Now, if you do the maths, Jesus waited two days before heading to Bethany, which was a journey of two days. When he arrives in Bethany, Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days, which means even if he didn't delay by two days, Lazarus still would have been dead when Jesus arrived. Which makes me question, why did he delay for those two extra days? What purpose does this achieve? Now, you see, it was a common belief in first century Judaism that the spirit of the departed person kind of hovered around the body for three days, waiting and hoping for some type of resuscitation, some type of intervention. After those three days, they believed that the spirit would go off to be with the Lord. And so by waiting for four days, waiting for Lazarus to be dead for four days, Jesus enters into a situation where there is absolutely no hope which means that when he performs the action he's about to perform, it could only be interpreted as a miraculous sign of God. It could only be seen as an act of God. Now, hopefully you also noted something weird about Jesus' prayer when we read through the passage. As Jesus prays, this is what he says. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me. You see, Jesus didn't pray that prayer out loud for his benefit, but for the benefit of those standing around him. His public prayer was to make it clear that what he was about to do was centered on his relationship with God, his relationship with his Father. This prayer was to make it easier for the disciples, easier for Mary, easier for Martha, easier for all of the Jews who were present to believe that Jesus had been sent by God. And so the resurrection of Lazarus occurred to provide clear evidence for Jesus being the Messiah, because only one who came from God and was God could perform such a mighty feat. And we're really lucky that John records that for us here in the Bible. We have a competent and trustworthy eyewitness. On a Friday night, we've been reading and learning from the book of 1 John, which is by the same author that we've just read from tonight. And here is how the book of 1 John starts. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. We trust the evidence that we have here in Scripture that has been faithfully passed on to us. And Jesus provided physical evidence to his early disciples to understand his true identity. And there was no greater proof of that identity than raising Lazarus from the dead, and then, a little bit later, a few chapters on, doing the same himself. Which is quite a natural segue into my second point, which is that the story of John 11 both foreshadows and triggers Jesus' resurrection. Now, this word foreshadow came up in our home group a few weeks ago, and we had quite a bit of discussion about what it actually means, and a lot of attempts of people trying to guess an example of it. And because all of those examples were horrible, I googled it. So here is what the word foreshadow means. 
It is a warning or indication of a future event. Now, the best example I could think of for this is from Star Wars Episode 5, The Empire Strikes Back. If you've not seen that, I'm about to ruin it for you. You've had your chance to see it. Luke is on Dagobah. He enters a cave. He fights a vision of Darth Vader. He defeats the vision of Darth Vader, and under the helmet, he sees his own face. This perfectly foreshadows later on in the movie when Vader reveals that he is Luke's father. That is what a foreshadowing moment is. The amount of shocked faces I assume is pretended. <laughs> in the same way, Lazarus's death and resurrection foreshadows Jesus's coming death and resurrection. You see, Lazarus died. Lazarus was in a tomb for several days. He had a large stone placed over the front of the tomb. He was wrapped in grave clothes. And then despite all of this, he was resurrected from the dead. Jesus, in only a few chapters' time, will follow this exact same story. Now, it is important to note that while Lazarus did actually die again after this resurrection, eventually, not like immediately, but he did die again, the resurrection of Jesus was a permanent one. It was a raising into eternal life. Now, we also see that Jesus' resurrection of Lazarus triggered the events that led to his eventual death and resurrection. While the group of Jews, like different groups of Jews rather, had wanted Jesus dead at different points, this seems to be the event that triggers the leaders of the Jewish people also wanting Jesus dead because they go to the Sanhedrin, the highest governing authority in Israel at that time amongst the Jewish people. The Sanhedrin consisted of 70 men and it was responsible for local rule over the Jews. It also was responsible for sussing out claims of people being the Messiah and uh, dishing out punishments if anyone was to break the Mosaic law. Now, this council of Jews walked kind of a really fine line. On one hand, they had to appease the Romans because the Romans could kick them out of power whenever they wanted, but they also had to appease the people and the people weren't a big fan of the Romans. So they walked this very fine line. As Jesus grew in popularity, especially after this impressive miracle, they realized that if they stood by while the population acknowledged Jesus as the Messiah, there was a chance that the Romans would remove the Jewish nation from the face of the earth. Into this situation steps Cephas, the high priest, who proposed a solution in verse 50. He says, You do not realize that it is better for, that, it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Cephas is proposing a radical solution to the problem of Jesus. Kill him. Because he reasoned that it was better for one man to be put to death than for the whole nation of the Jews to perish because of a Roman crackdown. And so from that day on, they plotted to take his life. However, this again is another moment of foreshadowing because John explains he, being Cephas, did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and to make them one. John 11 is a bit of a turning point in the Gospel of John. We as the readers have been reading all these different signs that Jesus has performed over three years of ministry. 
But from chapter 12 onwards, we will read about Jesus' final week in Jerusalem, which will end with his death and his resurrection. However, since we've read chapter 11, because we've seen him already raise someone back to life, we wait with great expectation for what Jesus will do after he is killed. We also wait with great anticipation for our own resurrections, which leads me to my final point, that our resurrection is guaranteed. In John 11, we find the fifth of seven different I am sayings in the Gospel of John. Now, verses 25 and 26 say this, Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. This involves three different claims that we've just read here. The first is that Jesus himself is the resurrection and the life. In other words, he has the ability to bestow life on anyone he wills. We see this when Jesus raises up Jairus' daughter from the dead. We see this when Jesus rises Lazarus from the dead. We see this in Jesus himself when he says that no one can take his life. He is the one who chooses to lay it down and then to take it up again. We also see Jesus commission his disciples to do this exact same thing as well. And in the book of Acts, we see both Peter and Paul raise people back to life who were previously dead. So Jesus has life and has the authority and the ability to give that to whom he wills. The second is that people who believe in Jesus, even if they die, like Lazarus did, will live. Now, we see a direct obvious example of that in the story that we read tonight, but this is a foreshadow, there's that word again, of the resurrection that we will all experience on the last day. And the third thing we read is that people who live and believe in him will never die. Now, this isn't literally true for our life right now, because point two of what Jesus said is that people will die. But this is true in the sense that even, not even death can break our relationship with God. The life of a believer is of such a quality that we will never die spiritually, and we will have eternal life. So even when we suffer the end of our physical life, that is only a step towards our resurrection life. Now, I've already mentioned multiple times that our resurrection on the last day is something that we should look forward to. And this is clearly something that Martha believed in. She says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Now, this idea of a resurrection on the last day was a really normal, really orthodox Jewish belief. Now, Martha affirms that she believes Jesus is central to this belief, but is this a Christian belief? What about heaven? Here's what theologian Wayne Grudem has to say. Christians often talk about living with God in heaven forever, but in fact, the biblical teaching is richer than that. It tells us that there will be a new heavens and a new earth, an entirely renewed creation, and we will live with God there. Now, while saying, our future while saying our future resurrection isn't quite as snappy as saying heaven, resurrection is what the Bible teaches. Whether you look at Isaiah 65 to 66, 2 Peter 3, Revelation 21, the Christian hope has always been resurrection into a renewed creation. Now, 
in these new heavens and new earth, there will be a place and activities for our resurrected bodies, which will never grow old or become weak or ill. Now, God made the original creation, the original physical creation, very good. So there's therefore nothing inherently evil or sinful about a physical existence or a physical world that God made. And so the physical bodies that he gave us at creation and at new creation will be a good thing. Paul tells us in the book of 1 Corinthians that when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose in a new body that was imperishable, it was raised in glory, it was raised in power, and it was raised a spiritual body. This new resurrection body that Jesus had when he rose from the dead is the pattern for what our bodies will be like when we rise from the dead. We now have a physical body like Adam did, but we will have one like Christ when we are resurrected into an eternity with God. And we can be confident of that because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, which he proves by raising Lazarus from the dead and then proves again by his own resurrection. So those are the three resurrections that we find in this passage. But I always desire to leave those who listen to God's word with some practical applications from it. And as I think back on those three different resurrections we've just discussed, I can think of another three applications for us tonight. So here's our three applications. First, John 11 is a story of tears and then comfort. Jesus is our God who wept and mourned over his friend's death. In other places, Jesus wept and mourned over the entire population of Jerusalem who had been lost and was about to be judged. However, Jesus also promises that blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Mourning is the most natural response in the world. Jesus mourned, but God is our ultimate comforter. In him, we have hope for the future. He also entrusts us to be comforters to those who mourn. So comfort those in your life who need it. Now, you don't even need to say anything. I know whenever I'm in a situation and need to comfort someone, it is my presence that is often valued more than anything. And so that is my encouragement to you is that it is your presence, your willingness, your service, and your prayers that will comfort those in need. Let us be a church who comforts well. Second application point. Have faith in Jesus, the resurrected Messiah. It is only through faith that you are saved. So investigate it. Figure out what your faith is based on. Initiate as many conversations as you need. We read tonight in verse 52 that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation and not only for that nation but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. This is the Christian gospel and I beg you tonight to seriously consider it. Third and finally, live in expectation for our future resurrection of the dead. Jesus explains in Matthew 25 that we are to be active as we wait for that day, living a life of service to God. If Jesus came back tomorrow, what would he say to you? Would he say, well done, good and faithful servant? Or would he chastise you for wasting your time and life as we approach 
that glorious eternity. There are some things we will not be able to do in eternity. That's right, you heard it here first. One of those things is evangelism. In eternity, you can't tell those who don't know about Jesus, about Jesus. That is something we can only do on this side of eternity. Comforting those who are suffering. Serving those who are suffering. Again, something we only do on this side of eternity. Because once we are resurrected, God promises that he wipes away all tears. And so that is an action you can do now that you'll never get to do again. And so my encouragement to you is to live in expectation for our future resurrection. As we close, tonight we've read about Lazarus' resurrection. We've seen how this event happened so that Jesus could prove who he was to his disciples. Thankfully, one of his disciples wrote it down for us so that we too can believe his eyewitness account and also believe that Jesus is the Messiah. We have seen how this event foreshadowed and triggered Jesus' resurrection, which is so central to our faith. And finally, we can put our trust in the one who is the resurrection and the life to also raise us up into eternal life. Join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the resurrection and the life. Thank you for what that meant for Lazarus. Thank you for what that means for us. I pray tonight that we may be able to comfort well those who mourn, that we may believe in your name, that you are the Messiah, and we may live a life that glorifies you in expectation of your return and our resurrections. Amen.